0: Welcome to this special joint podcast today, the Meridian Magazine podcast and the Scriptures Are Real podcast. We're here with Dr. Carrie Milstein, and we are Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is such a delight as we today study Isaiah chapters 1 through 12 with the lesson entitled God is My Salvation. We're so thrilled to be together today.
1: And for our listeners who don't know Carrie, he is a BYU professor of ancient scripture and knows the Old Testament and loves the Old Testament particularly in a way that I've always found very moving. He's written a wonderful book, one of my favorites, God Will Prevail. And also, let's talk about the book of Abraham. But he's also written a book, as it happens to be, on Isaiah, which is a great thing, Carrie, because for some people, The next five weeks, five weeks, we're spending on Isaiah to study on this Come Follow Me. This is a message to us. We need to know Isaiah.
2: Yeah, and hello and welcome. And and I'd love to introduce you in just a second, but I'm going to agree with you that uh, I think that we are getting a strong message that this is important and we're going to spend some real time on it. Uh, More than a month of our lives uh, this year will be dedicated to studying those great words. So thank you for having me on. And uh, maybe I can just introduce my audience a little bit to to Scott and Maureen, who I've known for a number of years, and we've done a joint podcast once before together. So those who haven't heard it should all go and listen to that episode as well, uh, back in numbers. But uh, Scott and Maureen head up Meridian Magazine. And so this is an online source uh, that has uh, current news articles that are of interest to Latter-day Saints and uh, articles from an LDS point of view, plus all sorts of religious and gospel topics and essays every now and then, uh, not as often as I would like, but every now and then I contribute to it. But you have a thousand great contributors with a, a thousand wonderful things going on there and you have so much that you bring to the table and that you offer um, and also you uh, run this podcast so so many good things that you're doing for everyone i'm so glad to be with you
1: so let's dive in because people think about isaiah and they tremble they tremble in fear or they think oh my goodness this is going to be such a boring time to study isaiah There's that old joke that a soldier is in battle and he's hit by a bullet right at his heart, but it it doesn't even penetrate because he's got a Book of Mormon there, and when he goes and looks at the Book of Mormon, the the bullet has stopped right in Second Nephi because not even a speeding bullet can get through Second Nephi. Uh, uh,
2: uh, 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 yeah, I've heard that joke. I was honestly just a uh,
1: hundred times. Yeah,
2: yeah. I was honestly just talking with a fantastic member of my ward over the weekend. Well, he was he was talking to his children, and I was there, and he was telling them. Uh, that the first 10 times he read the Book of Mormon, he just read First Nephi and he'd get to the Isaiah chapters and he'd stop. So he finally decided to skip that and go on and he found he loved the Book of Mormon. And it was years before he would try to read the Isaiah chapters. So I think that that, uh, that happens. But I believe that this year— With the spiritual momentum we have in studying the Old Testament and the enthusiasm and all the resources that we have, I think people are going to have a great time with Isaiah this year, and they're going to find it exhilarating as they understand things. No one's going to understand every word, but uh, they're going to understand a lot of things and see how it applies to their life. I think we've got the tools in place to make this and the momentum in place to make this a great year and a great experience learning to love Isaiah.
0: I think it's very exciting, Carrie and Maureen, as we have been all over the Church, and we see people truly thrilled about studying the Old Testament. I agree. There is a momentum, There is, and I'm playing off of what you said, Carrie, because there is a spiritual momentum that I've never seen before. I see it when we study the Book of Mormon. I see it when we study the New Testament. I see it certainly when we study church history. But when we get into the Old Testament, there's almost like a, can we endure to the end type of feeling. And this year I have not felt that. I felt like people are excited as they study all these stories that they really have never dived into. And now we're there. And I agree with you that this year, we're gonna learn to understand Isaiah.
2: Couldn't agree more.
1: So there are some keys um, to understanding Isaiah, and we're gonna talk about those keys today. Because if you don't have these keys in place, it makes it harder, and we wanna make it easier to understand Isaiah. And Carrie has put a number of these ideas together for an article we're going to soon run on Meridian, and that he, he teaches everywhere. But the first one I thought was impressive, Carrie, was Slow Down.
2: Yeah. I, I do think that's one of the biggest keys. If People feel like they'd like to race through Isaiah the same way we race through narrative chapters, and, uh, and we can't. Uh, Isaiah crafted his words very carefully. He has uh, deep messages for us and a dense way of, of packing a lot of meaning into a few words. And if we think we're just going to race through that, then we're going to miss most of it. And if that's what you need to do, then that's what you need to do. But uh, if you'll take some time I think really we just have to be willing to pay a price of spending some time and we'll get stuff out of Isaiah. Now, we only have so much time in the day, so you'll have to make that decision. Or Maybe you have more time to spend to Isaiah. Maybe you're going to set aside more time during these five weeks. Maybe you're just just going to try and get through as much as you can, or maybe, and this would be my recommendation, if you don't have a lot more time to throw into it, uh, is to say, okay, well, the stuff I'm going to read, I'm going to read and do it well, and I may not get to all of the chapters, but I'll choose the, my chapters carefully, and I'll go through them carefully, and I'll I'll pay the price, and I'll, I think if we do that, we'll be richly rewarded with the things that we get out of it.
0: It makes me think about the people who were living in Qumran as they were copying the scriptures. This was part of their way of studying the scriptures. And we have discovered 21 full copies of Isaiah. 66 chapters of Isaiah, and not all of them are complete, but many of them are complete. 21 full copies. Just sit down and start copying Isaiah. And it shows how serious they were about understanding him and about delving into Isaiah that that makes me very excited
2: uh, I, I agree uh, In fact it's interesting both uh, the, the so at Qumran that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from uh, and that so those Dead Sea Scrolls which are around at the same time as Christ and and in the Gospels Isaiah is the most off-quoted book in their scripture. Their scripture is the Old Testament, right? When Christ says, study the scriptures for in them you have the words of eternal life, or you think you have the words of eternal life. Uh, he's talking about the Old Testament. And the one that they are all quoting the most is Isaiah. Uh, and that includes when he comes to the saints in uh, America, and he tells, He Christ quotes extensively from Isaiah and rearranges verses and gives them new meaning and all sorts of things. And he tells them, study these words for greater the words of Isaiah. And, and uh, he gives it a ringing endorsement of how important Isaiah is.
1: Well, and I find when I study slowly Isaiah, that I might Google something historically to find it out. Yes, I might turn to a commentary. I might look at an image and think, what would a hut be instead of a a wall or a fence around a vineyard in a vineyard. I mean, what does that mean? You know, you uh, begin. You begin to say, "Okay, I want to understand what this means." And if you can get a handle on a little piece of it, then the the tools you used to get that handle, you can use again and again and again. And pretty soon, uh, Isaiah starts opening to you like a fan. You know, one little piece at a time. Oh my goodness, I can see now. And so, yeah, you take that time on just a a few chapters and you get hooked and you say, oh, my goodness, this is so deep. And if all these people through time have said, you know, certainly our our Nephi and certainly the people at Qumran, et cetera, if they value Isaiah so deeply, then we know there is spiritual richness there for us. So why wouldn't we take the time to really dig?
2: Uh, I agree. I agree. And, and maybe one of the first ways that we need to do that, and, and you made allusion to this, is uh, not to skip through things that might be symbolic. Uh, Isaiah uses symbols a tremendous amount, uh, and, and he uses those symbols to create images. Uh, and so Isaiah is an artist with words, and he wants to paint a picture that causes us to feel something. So sometimes we, we tr- are trying to figure out the literal meaning of something when what we should be doing is saying, what? What is he trying to get me to feel with this? Uh, and, and how does he use a symbol to convey that feeling? And so I'd say one of the things we have to do when we're slowing down is to unpack symbols. You come across a symbol. Uh, maybe he mentions threshing. Uh, and, and so the first step is to understand what threshing is. Look at the literal symbols. Often we skip that and we just start, okay, we kind of know what it is, so let's start applying Stop and research. You you can Google search or whatever else you want to do. Use commentaries, but uh, find out what is threshing. And then you can start to say, okay, so how might those symbols uh, or what might those those real elements, what might they symbolize? And then you can take another step and say, okay, and how, how might that apply in my life? And you'll find that at different periods in life, they apply in different ways. And, and uh, Isaiah will speak to you differently in one situation than he will uh, the next month in a different situation uh, because of his use of symbols that can be applied in so many ways. But we have to carefully unpack these symbols uh, rather than race through them. And we should probably be looking for symbolism uh, more than we often do uh, and, and imagery, as well. So, in, in fact, let me see if I can find these uh, verses in, in chapter 5, I think. Um, oh, yeah, here we go. Ch- the end of chapter 5. And these are verses that I hear a lot of times people say, even in, in uh, some pretty good publications, oh, well, Isaiah hasn't seen trains and planes, and so he's trying to describe those. Maybe that's true. Maybe. But I suspect uh, it's more likely that he's trying to paint an image. So let's look at uh, verse 26. It says he's going to lift up an ensign to the nations from afar and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. So he's calling together an army and Isaiah is going to try and describe what that army is like. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loose nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. So one of the the keys is put yourself in Isaiah's original audience's shoes. What are they going to think when they hear this? An army that never stops? An army that doesn't have to take their shoes off and rest? They are just coming and coming. That's a terrifying thought. This army is going to get here twice as fast as any army ever because they don't have to rest. And then we go to verse 28, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent, All right. Usually you don't leave your bow bent uh, because it will lose its spring, but they're they're sharp and ready, they're always ready. Um, their horses hooves shall be counted like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. So it's describing a chariot, right? And you, one of the problems with chariots is the health of the horses. And one of the problems with the horses is that as they're going on rocks, their feet can get hurt. But if their feet are like flint, Nothing's going to stop them. And they're going to be moving so fast that their wheels are like whirlwinds. And again, Isaiah's audience, and this, I mean, in a way, we can interpret this a number of ways, but in a way, he's describing the Assyrian onslaught. And they recognize that. And they're thinking, wow, these charioteers are serious. This is scary stuff. Right. And then we keep going. Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions, yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver it. Again, he's using symbols they're familiar with. Lions are the scariest beast around, and when they get their prey, don't try and take that from them. You're going to come out on the losing end of that battle, right? Unless you're David, I guess. But everyone else, uh, it, be careful of the lions. So he's he's comparing this uh, army to the most ferocious beast that once they They are locked onto a prey. There's no escape. Uh, And then he goes on, and in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. So, again, this unending, uh, irresistible force. And if one look unto land, behold darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. So, you read all of this, and we've got several symbols there, but then you have to stop and ask yourself, what is Isaiah trying to get me to feel? He's painting a picture with words. What was he trying to get his original audience? And what is he trying to get me to feel? And I think what he's trying to get us to feel is fear, that if they don't repent, then God calls up an irresistible force, one that is so scary, there's no escape. And he wants you to feel a certain sense of fear and panic over what will come upon you if you don't repent and keep your covenant. And so maybe it's also supposed to be about trains and things in the future. But I think mostly it's just an image he's creating to terrify his audience and us, not because he likes to terrify us, but because he knows how terrifying it really is when we don't keep the covenant, and he knows what's really going to happen to them when the Assyrians come. And he knows what happens in our lives if we let Satan's army into our lives and the havoc that they will wreak. And so he Wants us to understand how serious that is, and he's used his words to paint the image to get us to feel that feeling.
1: Well, another set of images he gives us over and over again in these chapters is the rod, the staff, and the yoke, and, and these are all um, slavery kinds of um, images and symbols that he paints for us because that is a rod is how a um, master beats his slave, and um, and of course. We, we think of the yoke, as uh, in our minds, as being yoked with Christ. But in this is also a, a slavery idea, an idea that you will be put in absolute subjection to someone else because you have neglected to keep your covenants. And isn't it interesting how clear this is? It's almost terrifying. Well, it's not more than almost. It is terrifying. And yet, um, the people just can't hear it. They just can't understand.
2: Then or now, right? Uh, and you're absolutely right. He, he uses slavery image very frequently. Uh, it's all over the place. And he uses some imagery of being freed from slavery, which is also very hopeful. But one of the things that he, he does is, again, and, and this is this layer of symbols, right? So we just went through it like trying to understand literally the Assyrian army and what Judah is going to face. And then we can understand spiritual implications. The same thing with slavery. It, they should be terrified. The thought of being taken slaves by the Assyrians, or later the Babylonians, should terrify them. But the literalness of that, that being a slave, and we should understand how terrible it was and look into it and, and get that, then that better helps us understand what he's also teaching us on another layer, which is when we become slaves to sin and to Satan because we break our covenants, and, and uh, we will understand the terror of that better. And why we shouldn't get ourselves in that situation if we've looked at the literal symbol of slavery to the Assyrians or Babylonians first, right? So this is this unpacking symbols that I'm talking about. Look at the literal thing first and the original context, and then you can better find those applications in your own life.
1: The thing about the use of these symbols and why it's so worthwhile to unpack them is because they stay with you. There there's a reason that writers use metaphors like this. It stays with you. You can feel it. You know, you can feel those 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 hoofs that are made of flint. You know, nothing stops this army from coming. And that gives something chilling that I take away and remember that this is a very serious business.
2: Yeah. In fact, maybe I can just give one more example of that. And it's not from this week's reading. So this is a teaser. I'm going to have the audience wait and find out when they see this and recognize it in later week's reading. But Isaiah uses this great image that, again, has a literal fulfillment when he talks about uh, the Assyrians or the Babylonians coming and conquering a place and then loading their idols into their wagons and taking their idols home, which is something they really did, right? They, okay, we've conquered you. The way we'll show this is that we're going to take your idols and make them slaves to the idols of our gods. But he talks about how heavy those idols are in the wagons and how they make the wagons break down and how hard it is to tow them where they're going and and so on. Okay, that's a real thing. uh, And and that really happened. But thinking about that real thing can then help us understand how— do we do that with the idols in our lives? We tow them and they're a burden. We think they're going to help us, but they're a burden and they drag us down and they make it so we can't get anywhere. And I'll tell you that to speak to your point, Maureen, that image speaks to me all the time because it is such an an image. I can remember that symbol. I can think of a big statue in a wagon and it's too heavy for the wagon and the wheels are are breaking off. And, And because that's such a vivid image in my mind, it comes to me when I think of, uh, it's something that seems like, okay, this is really hard, and I have to stop and ask myself, okay, wait, am I going through this because it's my idol, and I, I'm the one that put this thing in my wagon? Is, is, can I get rid of it? If, if so, if this really is of an idol, let's jettison it for my life so that it's not slowing me down. And that comes to me again and again because I can picture it. I also was taken in the article that we have run on
0: Meridian that you've done, Carrie. Uh, You mentioned how, of course, we're unpacking these symbols, and that was very helpful for me as I was reading chapter 8. And there were three symbols that kind of jumped out at me, and that was water, temple, and light. And one of them, you know, the water is essential for our spiritual salvation, and Jesus is that living water. And then, of course, if we allow Jesus to be our temple, our place of refuge— our safe harbor, our rock, our cornerstone, then our lives will be completely different. And then the uh, accepting Jesus as the great light in our lives. So those three symbols, if you think of them that way, as you're reading chapter 8, and of course all the chapters, but as you see it, that's, again, unpacking those symbols, water, temple, and light. That really made a, a difference for me in understanding chapter 8.
1: You know, one other thing shows up in Isaiah is is that interchange between holy and temple, that they're basically derived from the same thing. And so the Lord wants to create a holy people. He wants to create a temple people who centered in their covenants in the temple. So when the Israelites turn from correct to apostate temple practices, that's when they become completely ripe for destruction.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll see that uh, Isaiah talking about that. We'll see Jeremiah talking about it even more, this idea that uh, when you take that which is holy and you make it really profane, right? it, it, then they, they're doing idolatry in the temple and they're turning temple things into idolatrous things. Um, when you do that kind of a thing, then you've, you've kind of gone the reverse direction of what you're supposed to be going. We're supposed to take our unholiness and making it more holy, but when you start taking holy things and making it unholy, you're, you're full direction away from God, and that's when uh, you, he's going to humble you. And and let's keep in mind that the destruction, I mean, it really is a just punishment. They've broken covenants, and, and so they deserve it, as it were, under the law of justice. But God uses justice to humble us, to bring us back to him. He doesn't do it just for justice's sake. He, he, it's punishment with a purpose. He is trying to bring us back to him. And uh, punishment or humbling is a very important tool in getting us to realize we need to change and we need to come back to God.
1: Isn't the full definition of justice to make right again? Yes. To bring all things back into their, their right order?
2: That's exactly right. And that's what God's trying to do with us is to bring us back the way we should be. And Carrie and Maureen, I was just thinking a few minutes ago as we were talking
0: about the people in Qumran and how they had copied Isaiah no less than 21 times, it reminded me of the fact that we all know that Nephi was very, very in love with the prophet Isaiah. In the record that we have, he recorded uh, nearly a third of Isaiah, copied it into the record, just like the people in Qumran were copying that, that he copied a third of Isaiah. And about half of those verses are changed just a little bit. And so we have commentary in the Book of Mormon that helps us understand Isaiah. And since this is the first of five lessons on Isaiah, it's worth saying that we have a huge foundation of Isaiah right in the Book of Mormon. And sometimes Nephi or Jacob will take off on commentary talking about how this was so delightful to them, and how we understand it, how it helps us to, you know, liken these things unto ourselves, etc. So that's a really powerful commentary on this whole thing about understanding Isaiah.
2: Yeah, and and maybe I can just speak to two points of that. It's it's a very good point. So, uh, one, we're getting, you know, a, a big bang for our buck, two for the price of one when we're studying Isaiah right now, because it will also help us with the Book of Mormon year. Right. understanding Isaiah better right now will help us in the Book of Mormon year, understand the Book of Mormon better. Uh, and it's one of the things that I have in my commentary, all sorts of B- Book of Mormon highlights and an index that will help you recognize when the Book of Mormon is is uh, paraphrasing. It, uh, so sometimes it quotes, but it has a lot of paraphrasing and reworking of Isaiah that people don't recognize. And so when you're studying Book of Mormon, if you use my commentary, you'll be able to go back and look and learn some things about that. But, but it also brings up another important point, and that is that Isaiah— uh, and th- I think this is one of the great keys to understanding Isaiah. Isaiah, you most of his prophecies are intentionally written to be taken more than one way, at least two and often many, many ways. Uh, now, that's a little bit of why he's difficult. He has to be just a little bit vague in order for that to work. And so sometimes he's a little vague, so it can work in a number of ways. And Nephi gives us a fantastic example of that. Nephi, as you said, gives us a lot of commentary on the Book of Mormon. And some of that is commentary that can work for anyone, anytime. And a lot of that is commentary where he specifically interprets uh, Isaiah for his people. So it's, it's not uh, uh, what I would say is kind of even the general or the average uh, or largely applicable commentary. He gives it a specific Nephite commentary. And that's helpful for us to, both to see it and to understand the Nephites. But we should be careful and not think that's the only commentary. That And sometimes he's stretching it just a little bit, but he tells us that that's what he's doing. <laughs> um, it, 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 he's very clear. I'm interpreting this for my people. Uh, so sometimes he stretches a little bit, but he finds a way to say this means can mean this for us. And we can learn from that. But one of the things we should learn is, okay, that means that we should also find uh, an interpretation that works for us. In the same way Nephi interpreted in a way that worked for them, we can find one that works for us. And so we have his commentary to help us both see A an interpretation and to see how we can do different interpretations.
1: I want to address this idea that you were saying is that another principle is that all the verses... The ideas in Isaiah will often apply to multiple time periods. So we like to read things chronologically. You tell me a story, you go from the first to the last. We might have an occasional flashback, but we tell our stories straightforward, And that's what we somehow expect that Isaiah should be doing. And that's not what he's doing. Like his calling is in chapter 6, you know? He doesn't start that way. He gives, gives us his calling in chapter 6. And so I think if we can know the historical context well, that will all make a lot more sense. But the reason that it has to have these multiple fulfillments is because Isaiah is talking not only about his day, but our day. And so many of the chapters apply directly to our day. And that is why I think that we are commanded by the Lord to know Isaiah because it's about your day. And some of the little key words that show you that it's going to be a, a chapter that describes both then and now is it will say in that day or in the day or the Lord's day as we've mentioned. And so it's so important to really say, oh wait, They are talking about me here, and it's not all that flattering, you know? They're talking about Uh, this apostate world we live in. But it's good to know that that is what's going on as you study Isaiah, so you don't have some expectation that it goes straight from A to B to C to D to E, and it's going to be chronological.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of largely chronological with a lot of exceptions, right? So chapter 1 is actually a preface. It doesn't fit at the, the beginning. It, it should be uh, later on. It's it's just something that was put in. It's a prophecy that he received probably more than three-quarters of the way through his, his ministry, um, but it, it was set so well the stage for his entire book that it was put at the beginning. I don't know if he did it. It seems like it may have been later, uh, because Nephi doesn't Quote it, he just starts with chapter two. So, my guess is in Nephi's day, it still wasn't at the beginning. It was probably put there later. I don't know. We're just supposing. Um, there are lots of chapters that are out of chronological order. Um, and and you're right. And I would say um, a couple of things about what you said. And these are really important for understanding Isaiah. So, first of all, we want to be, I, I agree 100% with what you said. We have to be careful with generalizations. So, for example, there was a time where I thought anytime it said in that day, it meant the last days. And then I realized that sometimes, it's just continuing the day he was talking about. So he might be talking about the Assyrians or the Babylonians, and then he says in that day, and he's talking about the same time, right? So we just kind of have to look. But that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to the latter days. And, and this is one of the great keys. Mankind hasn't really changed that much. And we tend to repeat the same mistakes that everyone else repeated. And so the things – Isaiah will say something to his time period – And it applies to them very much, but it applies to us also because we keep making the same stupid mistakes our ancestors did. And we keep having the same needs and the same wants and desires, and making the same mistakes, and need to be given the same message, which is repent and keep the covenant and come back to God, right? And so these are are timeless in some ways. Some things are very, very specifically about the last days. A few things really are only about the last days. If you were to look just at our chapter headings, you would think that most of Isaiah is only about the last days. And that's worth speaking about as well, because the, the chapter headings are meant not to be an authoritative and final commentary, on Isaiah, they're designed to help you find the chapter that has something in it, right? And, and uh, so they will often say, "In millennial day fulfillment, I'm ready enough time fulfillment. And that means there is a millennial day fulfillment or a meridian of time fulfillment. It doesn't mean that's the only fulfillment. And if we, I don't, that's not what the author's intended for you to think of it as, but sometimes we do that. And if we do that, then we're having the chapter headings harm our ability to understand Isaiah rather than help our ability to understand Isaiah. And so one of the things that I think is so important is to always try and figure out what that original context meant. It's one of the reasons I wrote my commentary because I felt like most LDS commentaries, as wonderful as they are, Focus so much on the, the last days that they skipped over the original context, and yet I find understanding the original context usually helps us understand the last day's context all the better. Uh, and, and so we're going through the similar things to what they went through. Let's understand them, and then we can understand us better.
1: Well, I think since that really is another key to understanding, is understanding the historical context, we should delve into that for these chapters. Uh, why don't you give us some background on that? This is one of the most compelling events to me because I, I watch it come on with some horror. You know, you 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 just see it inevitably first that northern kingdom, sometimes called Ephraim or Israel, goes. The southern kingdom's just hanging in the balance, and we know what happens there too. But oh my goodness, these covenant people you've loved and followed for so long, you want to say, wake up.
2: That's right. And and the same thing with our day, right? We're, we we want to say to people in our day wake up. I agree. I don't look um, in the
1: mirror and say wake up, you know. Yeah, that's
2: I'm, exactly right. How to do better? So this is one of the reasons I'm so excited about what we'll do with Isaiah this year is because I feel like people really paid attention during uh, our reading of Second Kings. Now, we did it really fast. Like we jetted through there at hyperdrive, right? Uh, just crazy fast. But still, we have a bit of a historical background to build on that will help us understand Isaiah because you can't understand Isaiah if you don't know some of the history. So let's do some basic history, and then we're going to jump in with a specific historical setting that will allow us both to demonstrate, and we'll look at, at some specific chapters that will allow us to um, see how the uh, understanding the original context is important, and then how, once we do that, we can see how it has multiple fulfillments and can apply in multiple time periods. Uh, so let's, let's do that if it's all right, and we'll start out with this kind of general history. Isaiah is prophesying as uh, the Lord is warning both the kingdom of Israel or the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Judah or the southern kingdom, he is warning both of them that they are near to destruction. And if they don't repent and keep the covenant, so let's say stop breaking the covenant and start keeping the covenant and call upon him and focus on him and rely on him, that they are going to be destroyed. And they're getting warning from Isaiah, from Amos, Hosea, uh, Micah, and others. Uh, They're getting plenty of warning. And so, most of Isaiah's ministry is spent trying to get the people to repent so they're not destroyed. The northern kingdom will be destroyed partway through his ministry, and towards the end of his ministry, the southern kingdom will be nearly destroyed. So, we'll get to that stuff later. We're going to—actually, because that's the setting for chapter one, we'll do it a little bit now. And then in later um, weeks, we'll see as we get to, like, say—and I think they don't even have us read— uh, say chapter 36 and 37, because that was covered in 2 Kings, but you should review it uh, because that's when Jerusalem is almost destroyed but miraculously spared. And it's cr- critical to understanding Isaiah. So we just need to know, in general, that's what's happening. And that as Isaiah prophesies to the northern kingdom, they don't repent and they are scattered. The scattering of Israel happens during Isaiah's ministry, and he's talking about it, warning about it, and then lamenting that it happened. And then, as I said, and let's, let's just do this briefly so that we can understand chapter 1, and then we'll jump back into chapter uh, like 7 through 9. After the northern kingdom is destroyed, the, the southern kingdom, or the kingdom of Judah, comes under control of Assyria. And they are gaining a bit more power and taking over some of the the areas in the north that have been vacated by people as Assyria scattered the northern tribes. Uh, And they're doing fairly well, but the burden of Assyria is getting heavier and heavier. So Hezekiah decides that he will rebel. He turns to Egypt for help with that, and and he starts doing all sorts of things on his own to try and prepare for this invasion. I uh, will go more into depth than that in later chapters. But uh, Isaiah warns him, don't trust in your own works, don't trust in Egypt, trust in God. And so Hezekiah listens to Isaiah and gets his people to repent and get rid of idolatry and renew the covenant and keep the covenant. And as a result, Jerusalem is spared. But they, they've had enough problems every other walled city, every other major city, anything that's not just a teeny village, is destroyed by the Assyrians. All of them completely destroyed, and they come up to Jerusalem to destroy it, and it's miraculously spared. You, you'll remember that story from 2 Kings, but that's the setting, it would seem, for chapter one. So, let's let's look at a couple of those images in chapter one. Chapter 1, you start out with Isaiah chastising, uh, really, Judah for not knowing God when God has taken care of them for so long. And then let's look starting at verse 5. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Again, this is an image he wants you to feel. What is it like if you have all sorts of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores and no one's taking care of it and it's just getting worse and worse, right? None of us want that for ourselves. That's a terrifying image again. I don't wanna be in that situation. And he's saying, but that's the situation you're in spiritually. And in some ways, physically as a country. Uh, So that's why we get from there, verse seven, your country's desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. That has literally happened for them at this point. The Judah has been ravaged by the Assyrian armies and they have tortured and uh, pillaged and burned and raped and carried away slaves and so on, and the, the cities are left in ruins, and some of them will never be rebuilt. Um, strangers devour it in your presence. That's the Assyrians are eating all of their food, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Now listen to verse 8, and the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard. Let's stop and think about that. A vineyard, so you've got a whole bunch of grapes and one structure in it right? Just one lonely structure, a cottage in the vineyard. That's the the literal symbol. We can look at the next line, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. Same thing, huge field of cucumbers, one structure in it. Well, what's he comparing this to? The original context is Judah has has been so ravaged that there are no cities left but Jerusalem. It's the one lodge in what has become a field, it's the one hut uh, or, or cottage in what has become a field. It's the only thing left. And it, as it says at the end, is as a besieged city because it is besieged.
1: And Carrie, one other idea here is that there's not a watchtower in the vineyard that would where someone could watch and protect from invaders. That is gone. There's only a cottage.
2: Yeah, just a lone solitary thing left. That's all that's left. And, and so think, this is true for Judah. Uh, as a whole. This literally has happened to them. I think he's describing this just after it's happened. Uh, that thats I, I would guess that's when this was written and what the historical context is. But then we know that this can happen in a number of time periods, and it does, and it can happen in our lives as individuals, right? where if we are rebelling against God, if we're not keeping our covenant, then spiritually we have are full of putrefying sores and we're just a lone solitary thing. We're left alone in a field as the winds of Satan blow against us. And there's nothing to protect us and, and nothing uh, to help us and no, no one to warn us as you said, because we've lost all of that by breaking our covenants. Now, fortunately it's not the end. He's going to tell us that there's a chance, right? We, we can jump over. Um, let's jump over to verse 15. When you spread forth your hands, that's a gesture of supplication that uh, I've talked about in my uh, podcast when we did Psalms 24, but this is a gesture of subjugation. He says, when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear because your hands are full of blood, right? That's the opposite of the clean hands and pure heart. They're full of blood. But so that's why you've had all this bad stuff. He also has some verses in the middle where he says, well, part of it is that you're keeping the law of Moses, except for not really. You're going through the actions, but not keeping it with real intent. And we have to ask ourselves how we're doing that in our day. So with all these things, he's not gonna answer our prayers because they're full of blood, but now look at his invitation. Wash you, make you clean. So get rid of that blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Now look at the next line, learn to do well. There's such an important contrast there. Get rid of all the bad stuff, but it's never enough to just get rid of the bad stuff. You have to replace it with the good stuff learn to do well, seek judgment. So this is, as you were saying, Maureen, that means make things right for people. Primarily, it means taking care of people that need to be taken care of, but it means make things right. Seeking judgment means try to to make things right and take care of people that need to be taken care of. Relieve the oppressed, judge. Again, that means make things right for the fatherless and plead for the widow. So these are the good things you should be doing. Get rid of the bad stuff, replace it with helping people. And when you do that, now you're at the point where he can say, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And that literally happened for Jerusalem. They were on the verge of destruction, but they repented. God forgave them. They kept their covenant, so he kept his and saved them. And again, knowing that original context gives me hope that that can happen for me. Uh, as, as much as I might be a lone cottage in a vineyard, if I will get rid of the bad and replace it with good and then come to God, he'll purge me and we're good to go. All right, it's beautiful stuff. Now, that's again, this, this is jumping around chronologically because that first chapter is out of order. So we've jumped to, towards the end of Isaiah's ministry. Uh, with chapter two, we'll jump back into the beginning of his ministry. But, uh, but it's worth understanding that historical context and the images that he uses in there.
0: And I love this because it's this language of come and let us reason together. It's the same language used in the beginning of this dispensation in section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Come, let us reason together. And this is the Lord saying, come unto me. I have the atonement. I will heal you if you'll come to me and do the things that I've said. I just, I
2: love this so much. Beautiful. Now, I, I, we don't have time to do everything in these first bunch of chapters, but, but maybe let's use one more example of a specific historical context and how that can help us learn and understand multiple fulfillments. Um, and it's a very important one. So now we're going back to kind of mid-Isaiah's um, uh, ministry. So he starts prophesying at the beginning or the last year of Uzziah, uh, and then uh, Uzziah's son Jotham takes over, and then he dies, and his son Ahaz is king, and that's the setting for chapter seven. Ahaz is is king, and uh, he's king at a very difficult time. The Assyrian Empire is expanding. Uh, they have taken care of things kind of at home, or they've expanded to their east a little bit. Now they're expanding west, and who's to the west? Well, they're going to get to Syria, then Israel, then Judah, and so. Uh, Syria and Israel don't want to just capitulate and and become conquered uh, slaves to Assyria, but they know that Assyria knows it's not strong enough on its own to resist Assyria. Israel knows it's not strong enough on its own to resist Assyria, so they ally together, and they're hoping that with a number of people allied together that they can uh, withstand the Assyrian onslaught that's coming their way. They think they'll be stronger if they can get Moab, Edom, and Judah to join. But this is the story specifically of Judah. So they are putting a tremendous amount of pressure on Judah to join their, uh, I guess, alliance and rebel against Assyria. And Ahaz is looking at the situation and he says, huh, I, I don't think we'll be powerful enough, the three of us. I don't think we can resist. So he doesn't want to Uh, join that alliance. But that doesn't leave him with a good option, because when he says no, he's not interested in joining that alliance, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria say, well, we need them, so let's go to war against them and force them to join us. And they have two plans. Either they'll beat them in battle so soundly that they will make them join them, but that's not ideal, because then they've depleted all of their forces. So their other plan is Let's assassinate the king and put someone on the throne who would join us. And Ahaz has heard about both plans. And in fact, the battle does happen. You you may remember when we read in Kings that uh, that they it's called the Syro-Ephraimite War because Syria and then Ephraim representing the northern kingdom of Israel go to war against Judah. Um, and they did defeat them. They brought a lot of Judahites captive into uh, Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And then prophets uh, told them they shouldn't do that. And the people listened and they let the people go back. Um but there were losses, right? So, now the threat of uh, assassination is all the stronger. And that's the setting for uh, chapter 7 of Isaiah. So, let's look at it, and we're going to look at a couple of things in here. Um, So, we're going to start in verse 3. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now, meet Ahaz, thou and Jashub thy son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. So this is just outside the city where the waters from the Gihon Spring come out and go down and water lots of, like the King's Veil, vale, lots of uh, gardens there. But it seems like in that first area, it's it's got enough water and kind of marshy enough that they use that to do their washing. Fuller's Field means the washer's field. So that's where they go and, and do their washing, right where the, the water comes out of the city and is uh, available on the ground. So we know right where this is within, you know, not that many yards. Um, and this is what Isaiah is supposed to say in verse 4 Take heed and be quiet, fear not, neither be faint hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of resin with Syria, and of the son of Remaliah. So those are the two kings. Uh, of Syria and Israel. So, he's saying, don't be afraid of Syria and Israel, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst thereof, even the son of Tabiel. So, this is this assassination idea. Um, Verse 7, thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. And then he goes on to say, you have different names for Syria and Damascus and Ephraim. And he says within three score and five years, they'll be broken. So that's 65 years. We're going to find out it's actually not that long, but that's within 65 years, they won't be a problem for you.
1: Right. In fact, there's interest there up in verse four, where he calls them two tales of these smoking firebrands, because a smoking firebrand is essentially one that's going out. The fire is lost and now it's just smoking because, I mean, it's Isaiah's way through the Lord of using, again, a wonderful image that can really stick in your mind. These two nations, Syria and Israel, are smoking firebrands. They're they're burning out.
2: You're right. It's a great and fantastic image that does show that you you maybe would have been burned by them in the past, but they're sputtering now, uh, and and they're going to be done. Now now think of the situation Ahaz is in. According to the world's way of thinking, he had two choices. He could either join Israel and Syria and be defeated by the Assyrians, or he can join Assyria. And defeat his two enemies, but then he's a vassal to Assyria. And he has decided to choose that second one, which is uh, is going to cause him problems, but it seems to him to be the best option available. And if you're just thinking of things in terms of the world and worldly powers, that's probably correct. That's the best option available. But Isaiah, representing the Lord, gives a third option, one that doesn't make sense to the world, but it makes sense to God because he can do things that the world can't do. And God's advice is don't do anything, I'll take care of it. The world is not gonna tell him don't do anything. Don't do anything won't work well for him. If God's not involved, it's it's true. Don't do anything isn't gonna work. But with God involved, if he says he's gonna take care of it, it'll be great. The problem is Ahaz does not listen to God. He listens to the world instead. And we'll see, as I said later, his son almost makes that mistake, Hezekiah. He starts to make that mistake, but then when the prophet comes to him, he listens to the prophet. So Hezekiah and, and uh, Ahaz start out the same, gonna go with what seems their best options according to what they can see from the world's point of view. But they differ in how they react to a prophet who gives them advice that doesn't make sense. Hezekiah will listen to the prophet and he's miraculously spared. Ahaz doesn't listen to the prophet, and Judah comes under Assyrian control. But let's keep going now that we know this background and and see what happens. Uh, Verse 10, Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. So he's saying, "I, I want you to know you can trust in me. So ask for a sign and I'll give it to you. The problem is Ahaz has already decided what he's going to do, and he's not going to change his mind, so he's trying to find a way to wiggle out of this situation. And so he says, oh, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord, right? Nope, don't want to sign because then I'd have to do this, so I'm don't give it a to a me. I'm such a good guy. Yeah, yeah. is what he's
1: saying. I'm such a good guy. Yeah, yeah. I won't bother. I won't bother. The yeah,
2: Lord. yeah. He's trying to put a, a nice window dressing on the fact that he is going to ignore God, <laughs> um, which is a little funny. And so this doesn't work out well for him. Verse 13 And he said, hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. So this is Isaiah saying, okay, look, we're not falling for your little ruse. You're wearying God by not doing what he's asked, but we're going to give you a sign anyway. And it's an interesting sign. I don't know if he would have gotten a different sign if he had asked for it. He's now going to be given a sign that he shouldn't do anything that's an odd sign because... It doesn't happen until after he already should have not done anything, right? So, uh, and I think that's because he doesn't ask for a sign, but I don't know, we'll see. In any case, uh, we get verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, let's come back to that word virgin. There are two words that can be used for virgin in Hebrew. One, no doubt, it means a virgin, meaning someone who has not had sexual activity uh, and thus could not have a child. Um, The other one is ambiguous. It can mean someone who hasn't said had, had sexual activity, but it's really just a young woman. And most young women were virgins. So, but it really just means young woman uh, and not necessarily virgin. And so he uses the one that's a little more vague here, the one that can be taken in a couple of different ways. And I think that's typical Isaiah. He's going to make it vague because he wants it to have more than one interpretation. All right. So he says, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Literally. So, em is with and new is us, and L is God. Literally this is, with us is God, or God is with us. All right. Now, when we read that verse, we immediately go to Christ, and, and Christ is absolutely the most important fulfillment of this verse. His mother, Mary, is really a virgin, and she has a child, and that child literally is God with us, right? It's Jehovah, with us on earth. And so, Christ is the most important fulfillment. But let's keep reading. Butter and honey shall he, the child, eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. So for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. So let's think of that. When we think of age where you know to choose good and evil, typically we're thinking this is around eightish, right? So it seems to be saying within about eight years, those of, of when this child is born, those two kingdoms are going to be gone. You won't have to worry about them anymore. So with that time frame, that can't be Christ. This is about 740 BC. Christ is 740 years away. All right, so there has to be another fulfillment to this and it has to be one that's about a child that those two countries will be destroyed within about 8 years. All right? So with that in mind, Let's jump over. There are all sorts of other great things we can read here, but but we don't have time to read everything. Let's jump over to chapter 8. Chapter 8. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, take thee a great roll and write it uh, with a man's pen concerning Maharshal al-Hashbaz. Just a really cool name. Uh, yeah, I, I like that name. My wife didn't let me name any of our children that name, but it's a cool name. Um And then it says, verse 2, and I took unto me faithful witnesses to record, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebarekiah. So, he must be having them record that he's going to have a child and name him Maharshal al-Hashbaz. Verse 3, and I went unto the prophetess, so that's his wife, a young woman, let's keep that in mind, I went unto the prophetess and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, call his name Maharshal al-Hashbaz. Now look at verse four. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria. So that's Syria and Israel um, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So he's given us a different time frame because it's around two years is when someone is old enough to be able to say, my father or my mother, Abba or Ema. Right? Uh, uh, this is. Within about two years, now I don't know how much longer after chapter 7, chapter 8 happens, but there may be a little while. I don't think a very long time, but a little while. But within two years of that prophecy or of that child being born, and we've got nine months after she conceives that he's born, right? So you've got about three years basically from the first prophecy to the second one. Uh, Within that three years, the two kingdoms are going to be destroyed. Well, this makes it pretty clear that at least one fulfillment of this Emmanuel prophecy is Maharshal al-Hashbaz. He is born of this young woman, Isaiah's wife. They're both young at this time. He's born of this young woman, and before he's very old, it will be clear that God is with them because they'll be saved from these two enemies that are causing them problems. All right, so that's the kind of two-year or three-year range. But remember, the other one was about an eight-year range. Uh, and historically, most, I think in Isaiah's day and for most time after that, Jews are going to have a very specific interpretation for that eight-year uh, one, this, this Emmanuel prophecy that we have in verse 14 of chapter 7, and that will be Hezekiah. Hezekiah, who then we don't know, but I would assume is a few years old when that prophecy is given. Maybe five years old, so that within three years, this happens. I don't know, somewhere in there. We don't really know, but it's somewhere in that range. Hezekiah is a, a conceived of a young woman, right? And he will be the king who will get Jerusalem to repent, get rid of idolatry in their lives, decide to follow God, keep covenant with God, and then be miraculously spared, making it very clear that God is with them. Because God comes down and destroys his army and saves them, right? There's no doubt God is with them. And so Hezekiah is also a fulfillment of this prophecy. So we know at least three fulfillments. One is Christ, but the original context fulfillment that has these time periods very specifically given by Isaiah seem to be Maharshalo Hashbaz and Hezekiah. And there may have been more. I don't know. but uh, And the beautiful thing is that if I understand those original fulfillments, this original context, when I think about Hezekiah and what he does to make it clear that God is with them, it helps me better understand that most important context, Christ coming, and how Christ is our great king who helps us to get rid of the natural man, the world, the idolatry in our lives, and uh, gives us the opportunity to keep covenant and and makes us able to keep covenant. And then when we do, delivers us from whatever it is that's besetting us that we can't deliver ourselves from. And I understand Christ better because I've understood the original context and that these are fulfillments that can happen in more than one time period.
1: Well, Carrie, that is an absolutely fascinating discussion. And I love how clearly you show the multiple f- fulfillments of a prophecy that we all think we understood Perfectly, right? But there are multiple fulfillments in in Isaiah. And I do have to say it's very interesting that Assyria will follow, um, and Hezekiah will be right there to save. I think there's a very interesting image here when it talks about because, and I'll read it, for as much as this people refuseth the waters of Shiloh that go softly and rejoice in resin and Ramaliah's son so the two leaders of the the two countries, because they trusted in that and didn't go to Shiloh, who is really a representation of not turning to Christ. Then instead, Assyria will come like a flood, and it will come over the edges of the banks and flood the whole area. And again, this beautiful imagery that makes it very clear what's, what's going on there again. So Isaiah 8 is a very... Wonderful chapter, just as the others have been that we've been reading. And thank you so much for being with us today. We've loved every minute of it and learned so much.
2: Uh, It's been my pleasure, and, and thank you. And I've loved this final message of just this part of ICE.